You know the secrets of making friends? They are so simple and easy. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, the Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we will be reviewing episode eight, Word as Bond. Written by Sierra Gamble, directed by James Conway. IMDb originally gave this an 8.7, but I believe as of today we're down to an 8.5. Is that the critics' score or is that the... Yeah, it's the critics' score. So the more people that go on there and review can change the overall rating. How do you become a critic on there? I don't know. That's a good question. What's their credentials? They were at an 8.8 for last episode. The synopsis for Word as Bond is a 500-year-old Niffin and a forest of intelligent trees cause trouble. Margot feels the pressure of ruling while Julia's revenge turns deadly. Quentin faces the repercussions of the deal he's made. Before we get into talking about the episode, let's just go over our overall thoughts. I really like this episode, especially watching it the second time around. Again, I complain about this all the time. When we were taking notes, we missed so much. So the second time around, I can actually sit back and really enjoy the show. I love the fact that this episode was really, I mean, it was about a lot of things, but the through line really is what this crew will do for people that they love. We have Quentin and his love for Alice. We have Penny and his love for Katie. And Margot and her love for Elliot. Throughout this whole episode, you see how far and to what lengths they will go for their loves. I definitely agree with that. I loved getting the vulnerable side of Margot really opening up to Elliot. I had an intense love-hate relationship with this episode overall. I thought there were some great upsides. It was a return to book form in many ways. So we finally got the real Julia storyline of book two that I've been waiting for, which I think makes her more of an interesting character in the same way that Alice turning Niffin allowed her to show off her acting chops that you spoke of Oh yeah, a few episodes ago. So we no longer get the wounded Julia. Yeah, wounded, downplayed. She had to be very monotone almost all of this season. Except for the first half of episode one, season one. And as our Clatcher Emily put it, Julia finally got her ass in gear. (laughs) (laughs) It's dark and very scary to think about where this is going to go now with her, but I really appreciate the intensity and the drama that it's bringing to our plot. I also felt we got a really great storyline for Penny with the library contract that he had to enter into and the emotional turmoil of his relationship with Katie. And finally, there was some great comedy in the scene where Quentin tries to remember Alice's knowledge for the spell that he can't put together, yeah. the, the time sight spell. That was a great, great scene. I was laughing out loud for a good five minutes. Although I did think there was some poor execution. There was a lot of jumping around in short scenes. They were mixing tones, and that left me with a little bit of a disjointed feeling. For instance, Katie's transformation, where we got this look at her still struggling to such a great extent with her addiction, with feeling useless, all she's living for is to be functional enough that she can get this plan in motion to help Julia. I didn't get the sense throughout the rest of this season that she was doing that badly. 
And perhaps she was and just not showing it to Julia, but it felt like it came a little out of left field. What do you mean doing it badly? Emotionally. That she oh, was doing strugg- that badly. Yeah, she was struggling so hard. Well, I think with Julia losing her shade, more specifically with Julia being in this giddy up mood, it allowed Katie to kind of think about herself now for a little bit. And I think that was what was too difficult for her. And that's why she went back to the bottle and, and tried to drown those thoughts. When Julia was going through so much, they didn't have time to think. Katie could put her thoughts of what she's gone through and her drug habit with the medicine aside and really just keep her eye on what's going on. Yeah, I like that. She had to be strong for Julia. And so Penny steps in now and says, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to help you. And maybe that reinforced her sort of going to pieces that he would be there. And she didn't have to shoulder the weight on her own anymore. But she did make it seem to him like this is what's been going on with her this whole time. That she's been drinking so heavily because she needs to stop herself from going out and doing something worse. So I liked seeing more of her. What's, what's happening behind the scenes, I do feel we haven't gotten enough time with Katie prior to now. It, it just felt like a rough switch. It was extreme, definitely. But it was needed for this episode because Penny needed to fight for her. Yeah. And this was his way of doing it. So he, we needed to have an excuse for him to fight for her. Speaking of, did you think the Penny storyline was handled with enough weight? Because I felt they sort of dropped this bomb on you. And I don't even know if that resonated fully enough. Like Penny signed a contract yeah. to be in service forever. <laughs> well, I have a lot to say about that, but I do want to save it till we get to that scene. But I think there's something else going on there. Okay. And it's just a hypothesis, but we'll definitely get to that. Ooh, I love theories, though. That's good. And one more thing. The AV Club brought up a point. And I don't know how I feel about this, so I'm not saying I support it. But they said, sometimes to get from point A to point B, you need to introduce an additional step. For example, presumably the show did not want to actually suggest that having an abortion can cause you to lose your soul. They're saying it was implied... Oh, come on. That what I, well, that's what I'm saying. I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with that, but yeah, I don't think they were trying to imply that. That's just oversensitivity. A leads to B, but I see what they mean about, again, a bit of the rough transition. So for you, I don't even know if it sunk in until way later in the episode that Julia had actually lost her shade and turned into something different. What the beast was trying to do to her. Right. Well, they had implied this, or they had given us clues that this may happen last episode when the lady that was going to do the exorcism Mm -hmm. was explaining that the longer it's in there, the longer it will bind with you. Yeah. Meaning bind with your shade. And the harder it'll be for her to exorcise the demigod away from Julia without harming her. The demigod was already really intertwined. So in order to get rid of it, they had to it cut took a piece the shade with out. her. Yeah. They, they did imply, though, that it only cut a piece of it out, not the entire thing. So they get into that more. We'll talk about it later when we go over our fillery quest. Yeah. They explain <clears throat> the mechanics oh, cool. of exercising a shade. Well, I think that leaves us options that her shade isn't gone. It's only torn and it can be mended. Mm. That may be one of the trials and tribulations that the crew has to go through. 
along with Q being pretty much possessed, you know? Yeah. There's a lot going on, man. Yeah. So that was the good thing. We really heated up in certain areas, and I'm really excited to talk about it. I wanted to ask you, whatever happened to the Foo Fighters? Hmm. But then when I wrote that down, I started to hypothesize about this as well. This hypothesis is all hinged on this one question. Is that Foo Fighter still in the dungeon? Hmm. I don't know. I'm trying to remember if they let him go. Let's say the Foo Fighter is there. I think this opens up another storyline where Julia is down oh, there with the Foo Fighter. She's something out of these people. I didn't even think But it about might that. be for the positive for the crew. Well, when you were talking about can Julia mend her shade, I'm feeling like that probably can't happen. They probably can't repair it or they wouldn't have been so extreme in describing the risks that go along with this procedure. But it could be a question now of which side does she choose to feed? Does she play into this role as she was doing in this episode uh, of being the bad guy to a certain extent? One could say being shady. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Or does she try to nurture what's left of that shade if there is even is enough left to do so? But I really like that idea of her crossing paths and exploring what that could do. I thought they dropped it a little. And I was nervous. We talked about two episodes ago. Did they introduce too much by having the Lorian battle and the Foo Fighters right on top of each other? But this could be why they did it. Exactly. And it would make sense. Now, let's take it a step further. She's going to converse with them. And we're going to get to know more about the Foo Fighters through that Foo Fighter down Mm -hmm. there. But let's not forget she has that necklace that she's going to make. She has to drill a hole in it, which she'll be able to do with magic probably. That makes her invisible. So that's how she gets out. Oh, I thought it was only to gods, but if it's that powerful, maybe she will be invisible to everyone. Mm -hmm. And I also wondered, was that bullshit? I was a little skeptical of why she didn't try the spell before she left Alario for dead with the rest of the people she blew up in the forest. And the, the threat didn't even seem to be severe enough to warrant him handing it over so easily. Oh, I'll throw you in the dungeons. But if it is real, we know Alario is a hell of a magician. So that can get very interesting. So Julia may be our Harry Potter. <clears throat> the invisibility cloak. <laughs> she already has a mechanism that turns back time. So that's the Harmony character. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. She's got the invisibility cloak. Oh, but the time turner wasn't part of the three. The big three, right? It was the cloak. It was the Elder stone. wand and, and the, the resurrection okay. stone, yeah. We had one music note for this episode, Pedestrian at Best by Courtney Barnett. This played as Penny returned to the cabin to find Katie getting drunk and going on a rant about not wanting help. Now, because we watched with the closed captions, it was giving us the lyrics to the song, and it was perfect for what they were going through and what they were talking about in that scene. Yeah, another great music selection for them. One last thing to talk about before the plot. Jason, you found the quiz... No, actually, it wasn't me. It was Mel who tweeted about it last week, but it was right after we did our podcast, so we couldn't talk about it. Well, thank you, Mel, for giving that to us. It was called, What Magician's Character Would You Be During a Magical Bank Heist? And I was intrigued to find out what I would get. What'd you get? It was a lot of questions, which led me to think, oh, they're going to be right on the money with the answer. I got Julia, the resourceful one. Julia Gulia. And it says, money, like knowledge, is a tool, one that you can use to buy, 
shape, harm, heal, or influence people. You can choose to use these for selfish reasons or decide to make the world a better place. That does fit you. Oh, just in light of recent events, I don't know that I want to be Julia, but... In that bank heist, she saved the day. That's true. So, Jason, who did you get? I got Margot, team leader, a.k.a. head bitch. (laughs) Like Margot, this isn't your final rodeo, and you certainly don't foresee this being your last. Money is nice and everything, but that's not necessarily what actively tempts you. It's the rush of adrenaline that pulls you in. That and the chance to show off your sweet, sweet skills. (laughs) So thank you again to Mel. And if you took that quiz also and you want to let us know what your results were, please feel free to email us, tweet us, let us know. Let's talk new faces and places. We were introduced to healer Tara, played by Farah Aviva, who was the Florian healer sent to help Elliot. She didn't really have any big speaking lines per se, She was an important person in this process of, we didn't get that much screen time with Elliot. No, we didn't. you know, for that matter, you know, a lot of what's going on in the castle, but this was critical. Margo was kind of mean to her. (laughs) Well, Margo's kind of mean to everybody. (laughs) We also saw Friar Joseph, played by Jamie Harris, a master magician that lived a long time ago who Alice goes to see to find her way around the Niffin trap. We find out he is a Niffin as well. He's pretty badass as well. And scary looking. There's the reintroduction of the Netherlands librarian. I like her. Who I don't think we've gotten a name for yet. They just call her the librarian. She's played by Magina Tova. And she also told us about the order of the library of the Netherlands, a group of master magicians in service to the library. For places, we got the church that we just spoke of where we met Friar Joseph, and the one-way forest, a forest of intelligent trees. Now, this place is not on the Fillory map. No, I checked. And there's so many forests in Fillory that it's hard to keep track. Yeah. There were a few from the books that they talk about on the show. The Flying Forest and the Darkling Wood. But I think this is a TV invention. There were intelligent trees, but they didn't have a name for the area where they lived. And speaking of that, for creatures, you got the introduction of the Dryad, played by Grey Damon, who is the ambassador to all of the intelligent trees, and the Angler Beast, played by Bracken Hank, the vicious creature that Alice wheedles information out of about Friar Joseph. For spells and magic, we got kind of a lot this episode. Not all of them had official names, but we're going to go over them anyway. We got Time Sight. Now, I don't know if you always use a viewfinder for this or this is just the implement that they happen to have at break bills, but it was kind of fun that they used one of those old-fashioned viewfinders. That was very cool. And it's a device that allows them to look into a past time of a present location and see those events as still images. I love little things like that. One, it reminds us of when we were kids Mm -hmm. and it puts a little magic twist on it. Yeah. It's fun. We heard about the confusion spell that Margot used a pigeon for to drop on the Lorians. Yeah. Margot's badass chick. And now Julia showed us an enchanted doorway. She was able to use a spell to draw it and travel herself somewhere else. Have we seen that before or is that no, new? It's new. Hmm. Why don't they use that more often? I was wondering the same thing. Like they made it seem like Penny's the only one who has the ability to travel. I know his travel is special. Yeah. He can almost do it at will. 
But this looks like a pretty good alternative. Julia's been studying, man. I guess she so. She has more and more tricks up her sleeves. Well, another one we don't know a lot about, we'll call it Dana's protection spell. But it's what she used to keep her demigod son safe. We see in this episode that it erases all images of the social worker that was holding the baby right. in the hospital. That man, his face is blocked out in the viewfinder. And they talk about how special this was because it implies that she thought of magic that wasn't even developed at the time and what magicians might go through yeah. to find her baby years in the future. And she planned for that. It's amazing. It really is. I love the way they crossed out the man's face. Because uh, I don't know if you remember, whenever you messed up your viewfinder or the little disc, that's what it looked like. Yeah, like scratches on a negative. Yeah, it was perfect. And then you had what I'll call Alario's invisibility shield charm. It's the magic he used to enchant the stone that he gave Julia in order to produce a spell powerful enough to hide her from a god. That could be the sorcerer's stone. Ah, Holy shit, dude. Cool. <laughs> and it's all Julia. She has all the... They Harry Potter. Studying <laughs> Harry Potter. There's one more I just thought about. It must have been a spell. The, let's say, music box. I think it, it looked like a music box mm. that she gave to the... Yeah, that exploded. You're right, because I don't think she actually built a bomb. No. And put it in there. Magic. Good call. And one final one, the enchanted bridge that the healer uses to help Elliot return consciousness to his body. And she's utilizing these crystals that she strung over his bed. And it yeah. looks like energy moving in the form of golden light from one side to the other. It's very cool. But she also yeah. says that part of this is choice. Elliot has to make Want the decision. To. Yeah. And a lot of people, I guess, don't. I would love to see, is he somewhere else now that's really beautiful, beautiful yeah. and he would maybe not choose to want to come back? Maybe it's what Margot said to him that made him come back. I think that had a great deal to do with it. All right, let's jump into the plot. We start off at the physical cottage. When Quentin goes to check on Julia's recovery, Katie tells him that when the Mudang cut the demigod's soul out, they nicked Julia's by accident. Her shade is gone. Her shade is gone. <laughs> Her shade is gone. And this is exactly what the Beast had been encouraging her to do, to free her pain. Remember that? Yeah, which it seems to have done that and a lot more. And then we see Julia come waltzing downstairs, looking chipper. She says she feels a light, like a million pound weight off my chest. Yeah, <laughs> you can tell immediately something is not right. Mm. She is too happy for Julia. It's... Almost this disconnected feeling like you saw with Martin. Mm -hmm. He's sarcastic. Everything is funny. Nothing really means that much. There's no fear, no importance. Yeah, it was concerning, but also really good to see her like that. Oh, it felt good for her, even though I knew it was fake. Really? You know? See, I, I, didn't, I couldn't even have that moment. I just went, oh, no. As much as I was hating the depressed Julia... Mm -hmm. Everything that made her her <laughs> now seems to be gone. I mean, this wasn't even the Julia of old, you know, from before break bills and magic. Right. If we'd returned to that, then I could have celebrated. This is scary. <laughs> in discussing their plans for Reynard, Katie explains that back in the day when Zeus and the other gods used to rape women, 
Magicians came up with God-killing spells, but they all failed. Julia says they need to be ambitious. They can take those history stories as notes and build their own spell, but it would take a lot of energy to use it. And now that Julia got rid of her power source, they need another one. They need to find Dana's son. And I told you, remember I said they're going to end up needing to find him? Yes, you did. I love when they throw little truths in there. If you read about Greek mythology, Mm -hmm. that did happen all of the time. The gods falling in love with human women and going to all sorts of lengths to have them. And some stories will make it seem funny and charming, but basically that's what they were doing. Well, geez. (laughs) So yeah, they're finding clever ways of weaving stories... They re- Real mythology, pop culture, there's pop so much cu- going on here. I was just going to say, they, they find ways to do a whole bunch of things like that. I love it. That's what makes the show so fun to watch. At Whitespire, Alice encourages Q to sign the word as Bond, reminding him it's unbreakable, so he has nothing to worry about. Although Quentin still looks skeptical, they both use their blood to stamp and seal the spell, which burns a sigil into their palms. It's at that point that Margot comes to tell Q, according to the healer, The bridge should take a few days to enchant, and then Elliot's consciousness can travel back into his body. But the brownouts have become more frequent. It affects anything that draws current and messes up spells, but they're still trying to fix it. She says sometimes it happens once every two days, Mm -hmm. sometimes once every two hours. It's clearly getting worse, the drain on magic, and they keep dropping in little hints. Don't forget, magic is running out, and it's not working anywhere, including Fillory. This is when we first get to see Margot really taking charge. The way she's speaking to Q. Mm. She seems, at least from the outside, that she's got full control, full confidence, and she's ready to do this. So then they go to check on Elliot, who is lying unconscious in bed, being watched over by Fen and the healer. She says every time the magic stutters, she has to start the enchantment over again. Margot tells her to work faster. (laughs) And then in a private conversation with Q, tells him she's trying to delay the war. She had a pigeon drop a confusion spell on the Lorien castle, so they're moving slow right now. But regardless of the problems, she will handle it. He should go to break bills and check on Julia. And this is exactly what you were talking about. Making the decisions, yeah. realizing Quentin's going through something. So as much as she's probably freaking out, she doesn't even like Julia. But she's <laughs> like, no, this is important. Go do it. I'll take care of it. She came up with the confusion spell, so I've talked before about how she knows a lot of magic, and we see that in in little ways. But also, I kind of had a bit of a problem with this. She first makes a joke about enchanting a mirror for Quentin to travel through, and I thought she was serious, and I thought, oh, that's so cool. She's kind of like, no, and she whips out the button to give to him which is basically the Mm catch-all. We've spoken in previous episodes about how it seems to be fairly easy for them to get back and forth between Earth and Fillory. There aren't real consequences to that. There's no time changes. No time changes. It's whenever they need to go, they find a way to get there without any difficulty. You know, they don't wind up somewhere else. They don't wind up in the Netherlands anymore like they did in the beginning. Now, if magic is failing everywhere on Fillory, on Earth, why is travel so easy still? You know, if they're having a brownout and stuttering, wouldn't you think we would see even a little of that with them trying to get back and forth? Perhaps, but I think for TV, it just wouldn't be fun to watch. 
that kind of trouble would get old real quick for the viewers. So maybe they're just like, you know, we'll give you plenty of other issues that they have to deal with. You're right. They have certainly enough to deal with. And I wouldn't like that all the time. It would get annoying. But maybe once for somebody to have a little difficulty, lose a little time or wind up in the wrong spot even could be interesting. But for now, he is able to go back where he's needed. Back with Julia, Katie finds Julia drawing a magical doorway, and she says she found a hospital outside of Hoboken that took in a surrendered newborn around the right time. Katie warns Julia that she can't leave. She has to stay inside the wards. But Julia dismisses her concerns, saying that if Reynard were coming for her, she would have done so already. She doesn't listen to Q either. She just walks through. Yeah. She's very confident. She's like, uh, nothing can hurt me. Yeah. I'm sorry, Q. I didn't ask you for your opinion. She's rude to him. She doesn't care what he has to say. She doesn't even really have any fear. And that's why it doesn't bother her. She just wants to do something. She's bored. Yeah. And actually, there's another spell. She used a matrixing spell to find out where that hospital was. Right. Before she drew the doorway. Yeah. True. And of course... Uh, right away, there's the fox. Yeah. The moment she steps through. She's confronted by Reynard, who's at the park waiting for her. Or it seems like a park. He says that Dana met a bad end because she didn't tell him what he wanted to know. He starts to choke her and try to get the information out of her, but she shows no fear. He realizes she's had a little shade amputation, and he likes it. He then sees that Quentin has snuck up behind the tree. But before he can get him, Q uses the button to transport himself and Julia back to Fillory and out of danger in the nick of time. Go ahead, run. You can run. And run he did. Ooh, they just made it. I mean, really, what was she planning to do? I don't know. If she had no plans. going at her. Well, she obviously doesn't know where he is. I was hoping the fox would sense that, but I guess not. They told her the second you step outside of those magical wards, that's why it was so important for her to get to break bills. Yeah. He would find her. And and I think she didn't care, but I'm wondering if he would have killed her, would she have cared about that? Does she even have any regard for her own life anymore? I'm sure she does, but she has more regard for ending the fox's life. Q tells Margot that Julia needs to stay there for a while for her own safety, and then he returns to break bills. The moment he gets back, Alice takes over his body for her turn of the day. This was a great scene because, one, we saw that Q was actually thinking ahead, mm. and it was really well thought of. Julia's stuck there now. He has the button, and Penny's not going to take her. He knows for sure that she is safe. She yeah. can't do any harm over there. I actually can't believe they didn't just think of that in the first place when they went through all the effort of getting her to break bills, and how would they keep her there? Well, they didn't know that she'd be a danger of leaving. Till that's, right then, that's you know? true. Especially on her own. And this is when we start to see Alice. And she's like, yep, you are running out of time. Mm. Almost time for me. I love this kind of Alice. She's so badass. A little mean, but... <laughs> and we get to find out more about the impending war. The High Council says that using the gold the crew procured, they were able to fund the infantry. It seems as though they are outnumbered because they have spotted 8,000 Lorian troops headed to the border. But Ilario, the illusionist, was also spotted nearby, so the council believes he has enchanted the army to make their numbers seem larger. The real number is probably under 3,000. But the issue is they are amassing near the edge of the one-way forest, a forest full of intelligent trees. 
The trees have a long allegiance with Loria and a dislike of Fillory. Margot wonders why they can't just chop them down, and Tick says the trees are the last of their kind. Her languidness says violence against the forest could cause civil war. Julia actually speaks up to help at this point, or at least it appears that way. She says that in the books, the trees had an ambassador, a dryad, and meeting with her worked for Jane. Margot decides this is a good idea, and they're going to do it against the High Council's advice and common custom. Margot grudgingly agrees to take Julia along. When she complains that she's bored and needs to do something useful, she says, fine, but I do the talking. You just stand there and look vaguely indignant or whatever. (laughs) Which is great. So perfect. And I love the idea of getting Margot and Julia together because there's been such tension between them and yet we haven't gotten a lot of on-screen time for the duo. Well, it just goes to show, because we saw in last season that the crew needed to take that potion that got rid of their feelings and they were able to do magic that was more difficult. Well, essentially, Julia doesn't have that anymore. Her shade's gone. Mm. So she's more clear-headed. She can do all this magic. That's why she seems more powerful. And she can think more clearly. She's remembering the books more clearly. Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing the positives with this. And I think if Julia had a better balance, she would be one of the key crew members to help this war. And Margot and Julia actually work well together. I agree. Considering. When when they can get over their shit, get past that. It really was an episode of strong females. Yeah. You have Alice, the crazy, powerful Niffin, Julia without her shade, and Margot ruling Fillory. You're right. However, all three to varying degrees are also ranging from kind of bossy and hot-headed to flat-out evil. Mm-hmm. So kind of what are we saying about women? powerful women? I don't know how to feel huh. about that exactly, but uh, yeah, definitely topics that are coming up in my mind as we review it. Heavy is the crown, really. Yes. I think to be high queen, there's got to be some selfishness. There's got to be some evil. You know, all's fair in love and war. I don't blame her. I agree that Margot's doing a great job. It's just kind of levels one, two, and three on the crazy woman <laughs> scale. Speaking of the way they work together, Mel on Twitter said, Imagine how unstoppable Julia and Margot could be as a team on the reg. I want to see more of them. And I yeah. couldn't agree more. If you could get Julia consistently fighting for the side of good, they would rule. They would rule Fillory. Man, this crew's lives have gotten more and more worse. It's just so complicated. Are they still like enrolled in break bills? That's a good question. Is this like an intern hiatus? <laughs> a practicum? It's quite an internship. I don't think they're ever going back to school, but they might keep them on some type of list. They still have their dorm rooms. Right, just for the sake of being able to offer them the safety and protection when they need to be back there at break bills. Maybe that's how Dean Fogg is helping. Let's see what Alice has been up to. Q wakes up to Alice pacing the library and muttering it wasn't enough. She needed more time. She won't tell him what for. And Quentin wakes up, there's a bunch of books laid out in front of him. He looks through the books, trying to figure out what she's been doing. The book she was reading is about holy men throughout history who have tried to reverse Niffins, but she says it doesn't matter. They always failed. So yeah, this is when I was thinking, all right, Good. Alice is in charge. She's trying to help and herself. she's trying to help herself get rid of the Niffins. Yep. Or the Niffin inside of her. I don't know how to use that as a... 
I agree. I was thinking the same thing at that point, especially because it seems so hard to get the information out of her that it feels genuine. Yeah. She really wanted to hope, but at the same time, it's frustrating because no one's been able to do it. And that's why she didn't want to share it with him. Right. And no, we were so wrong, but we'll get there. First, over to a different library, the Netherlands Library, where Penny transports and tells the librarian he needs a copy of Future Movements of Magic as an errand for Mayakovsky in return for help fixing his hands. She tells him the order of the Library of the Netherlands are master magicians so they can help him. This contract initiates our services in exchange for un unlimited manual and magical labor. Bound in service to the library up to and after my death? Are you kidding? All very standard. For a period of no less than one million years? Okay, lady, are you joking? No. Okay. For life and then his soul for a million years afterwards. Yeah, that's not too much fine print. Do you trust her? I, I still trust her. I don't know why. It's the face, the smile. I don't think it's nefarious. I think it's just the way they get librarians. Oh, I see, <laughs> I felt exactly the opposite from the time we first met her. Mm -hmm. It looked like she was trying to portray a feeling oh. of trust and make you become comfortable with her. And yet she scared me. And I, I get it, though. There is something intriguing very much so. A library that has a book on every single person, their entire <laughs> life story so cool. from beginning to end. Talk about a place that you could get lost in for a million years. That just reminds me, was it Penny who destroyed the book, season one? Elliot. It was Elliot. Because he was high. That's right. Or drunk. Because she did cast them out, but apparently she got over that. Yeah, I think it was just Elliot that was banned there forever. And they were kicked out for the time being. She does say that he can't take a book out without a library card. And he had one for Mayakovsky in order to get it. So first she says she can put a rush on it for him. Of course, they don't have the book there. This library. They never have the book there. Yeah. But he fittingly responds to her offer with, you're crazy. Who yeah. would take that deal and why? I mean, there must be a better way to find a book and get his hands fixed. He's been on that quest all season. He can keep going on that quest. I agree. How come every scene that Penny is in, I love? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's great. Speaking of scenes with Penny in it, we go to the cottage and Q shows Katie what Julia found, a birth certificate for the baby. They figured out that a nurse, Michelle Walker, transferred the baby to a state social worker. But then there is no record of adoption and the trail goes cold as Michelle Walker is dead. When Penny comes in, he immediately notices something's wrong with Q. What's wrong with you? Hmm? Your mind is doing something. Uh, no, it's not. He's talking about me, Q. Stop that. Stop what? Stop singing Imagine Dragons to get me off the track. Lock it up, Q. Seriously. Look, why are you always poking around at me anyway? Can you just leave me alone? Oh, I'd love to. You leak, asshole. Okay, I have got to, uh... <clears throat> Something's wronger than usual. And he's a grown man. Moving on. Have you eaten lately? That was the best line of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Alone with Katie, she says it's time for them to talk. Because it's not just quick fun anymore. Hurt, Penny says he can just keep things professional if that's what she wants and help her with her mission. Which I think, in return, hurts her. I was confused at first because I wasn't sure if that's 
really what she was saying. Was she saying she wants more? I thought Let's initially, yeah, she was saying it can't just be having sex anymore. And that he was sensitive and overreacted to that and did his typical penny thing of shutting down. All right, fine. Just here to help then. Later, it seems to confirm she was saying, I don't want any type of relationship with you. We can't do what we were doing before. And I have other shit going on right now. So is it because he was trying to help her? She felt guilty maybe because she left him. So she still feels, she's still feeling what she did to him already and feels like she doesn't deserve it. That could be a part of it. I think she's so emotionally vulnerable as we find out later, even though she's not showing it, that maybe she thinks caring for Penny makes her more so. Mm. It exposes her to more hurt, and she just can't deal with that right now. We see what she went through with her mother all of season one. By loving somebody so much, she got really hurt and probably had to put up some walls. Now, she let Julia in, and they managed to become close, Best bitches forever. But also kind of look what's happened with that. You know, she was so traumatized. She felt horribly guilty about leaving Julia and what happened to her. So she's just been through a lot. And I don't think she's ready for a relationship of any kind. But that sucks. I was waiting for the real Penny Katie conversation to happen. And she doesn't even want to talk about it. But you know... In this episode, not this scene, later on, we do finally get what we thought we were going to get the first time they saw each other. Yes. Which was that conversation. Basically, they are both hurt. There was an effect on their relationship from her leaving. Yeah. The later conversation is great. So essentially, their feelings for each other, their lust, first took over. But then once that died down, not that their lust died down, but once that initial burst, they were able to think and talk about their feelings. Or yell about their feelings. Yeah, because let's face it, there was always more than just sex between them. They understood each other. They yeah. had a friendship. They worked well together. They, they just got each other. Yeah. I really me. do like them together. I like them as a couple. I like what they're going through, even when I'm frustrated because I want them to be happy together. It feels real to me, mm-hmm. and it always has. Not like sometimes it feels like there's some cheesy emotional stuff that happens. But not with them. They're great. Julia and Margot go out to the one-way forest, where they're met at the edge by a male dryad. They tell him they need help to settle the kingdom's unrest, but he sees it as an insult that the High King didn't come himself and denies them passage. Very sexist of the dryad. He's kind of an ass, this guy. And really weird. Well, he's a tree. Are trees... Weird? Asses by nature? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, they expected him to be a female, Mm -hmm. right? Going by the stories they had read from the Fillory books. So that was a surprise. He didn't say much. He was very mysterious, but clearly not into female rulers. (laughs) Not a feminist. Apparently, Fillory's never been good to arboreal creatures. Sounds like Loria has. I guess they have a special relationship with them. Well, Loria has more of a respect for nature because nothing was done for them as far as magic-wise. Nature didn't just provide like a servant. They had to work for everything. And just like 
Native Americans and how we were when we had to depend on nature more. They we, had a respect for they it. They had a respect for it, and they were one with nature. And, you know, whatever they would have to kill, they would give back in a way or say a prayer. Mm. So you, there's probably a big divide between those two different types of people. And if you are Mother Nature, which they are, essentially, right? If you're not respected and you've been there many, many, many more years than any Florian, you're going to take offense to that. And this is a long... There are two women coming up and just saying, can we, uh, let's call truths, isn't going to help. Yeah, and there's clearly been a long history of a bit of backwards patriarchy. Even though they have four rulers, it's not equal. No. The high king has say amongst everyone else. And the one-way forest, I guess, agrees with that. And it doesn't matter that she's the high queen. If they didn't send the main dude... Yeah, if the high king, if it wasn't important enough for the high king himself Th- to come. Right. Then it's disrespect and they don't want to hear it. And Margot can't tell them that he's currently in a coma because that just right. shows <laughs> weakness. <laughs> weakness, exactly. At the cottage, Katie tells Penny and Quentin they have had no luck with the demigod search. Q determines what they need is time sight to see into the past. But he stumbles to remember how and when Alice learned it trying to ask her without appearing to talk to himself in front of the others. He gets more and more tripped up as she bargains to give him the answer for an extra 30 minutes that night. Desperate, he finally agrees and gives in. She says it was her phosphoromancy professor, Professor McKellen, who had a viewing device that could bend light. So again, she takes what Q needs and uses it in her benefit and gains a half hour. And this is why... She was bargaining for that time from the very beginning. She knew she had to do research. She couldn't let Quentin find out what she was really up to or else he would stop her. Yeah. And she's making it happen. But also incredibly comical. He oh my can't God, what a funny scene. hold it together and yet they're just chalking it up to Quentin's a weirdo. <laughs> He's being Quentin again. <laughs> so weird. Talking to himself. Oh God, can you imagine... I want to see that scene from Penny's point of view without being able to see Alice. Yes. How funny would that look? I just want to rewatch that scene again, period, because I didn't see the episode again, and I loved it. It's funny. It's just as funny the second time. And it was great that once Penny heard about the time site, he was already flashed into that professor's room to get it. Mm. Even Penny doesn't want to be around you. As Elliot lies in bed with giant crystals hanging over him, very precariously, too. <laughs> it looks like it could fall any time yeah. on top of him. The healer tells Margot that he has to do the work of crossing back, and not everyone chooses to do so. Once alone, Margot tearfully begs him to come back. Elliot, you need to come back. I know that you have a constant low-key death wish, but you can't leave. They don't want me. They want the High King. I'm faking it out. So if you could just... Please. Please wake up. Very touching scene. And it shows you that she isn't all confidence. She isn't all bravado. 
she digs deep to have that sometimes. Yeah, I really admired her in that moment. Me too. And respected everything she's had to go through. I like her as a character, but I love the relationship her and Elliot have together. And she made me feel that Yeah. in the moment, that it, it was genuine. She really needs him. That is what Elliot needed to hear. From that point on, everything that Margot did meant much more to me because I knew what was going on in her head, the fears she had, and the ability to still think clearly and still confidently portray what she needs to. Well, on top of it all, probably being scared shitless that he's not going to come back now. Yeah. Because it, it wasn't working. Yeah, and her realizing that even if she has all the confidence, a lot of Fillory will look at her as a queen and not high enough. Yeah, second fiddle to him. exactly. So this is the scene we get at the hospital when Quentin's using the viewfinder, and he's able to look back at the same location in 1926. Mm -hmm. So fun. What a cool toy. Can you imagine, oh man, being like in your house and going to the year you were born and seeing your parents walk you into the house for the (laughs) very first time? So cool. Yep. Or what about going to Italy, the Sistine Chapel, and actually watching, watching him, him paint, paint it? <laughs> That'd be amazing. Well, any major historical moment, you, you could just see it occur before your eyes. But of course, the man's face is all scratched up. And Katie realizes Dana did this to protect the baby's identity. This woman thought of everything, huh? Yeah, I guess she felt okay about them knowing potentially the nurse's identity. The nurse has since passed away, right. but we have to assume the social worker is still around. That's the one whose face mm-hmm. she X'd out. And that leads me to believe that he does know where this child is. They have to find him because that's going to be the key. That social worker was wearing a pretty nice suit <laughs> for a social worker. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Fillory, at the edge of the one-way forest, Julia finds Alario who has been waving his wand around, casting spells. The two Felorian guards with her grab him, and Julia explains she needs an invisibility spell. Hate Fillory all you want. I'm here for one thing, and then I'm off this planet. An invisibility spell, strong enough to hide from a god. Why should I give it to you? Because I may not give a shit about Fillory, but I do, as its royal ambassador, have access to its scars and its dungeons, and I'll use A to throw you in B. But help me, and I'll let you go free. I don't believe you. Your loyalty will always lie with me. With me. My loyalty will always lie with me. Mm. And that was a key sentence. She was obviously lying. Whether he gave it to her or not, he was going to be punished. She knew what she was going to do at that point. But I think that statement was true. Oh, for sure. Right now, she is Martin Chatwin in female form. She's out for what's best for Julia. But he uses the wand to enchant a rock. He says to drill a hole in it and wear it, and then no one will be able to sense her. Finished with him, Julia then beckons the dryad and offers him the wooden box, which she says is a token of peace. He accepts it, seeming to trust her. But as she walks away, a giant explosion goes off inside the forest. Now, what was it that she did? It wasn't verbal. Something passed between them, and a look came over his face. Who? The dryad's face. I think it was just what she was doing, the actual symbolism and what she was doing. And the look on his face at first was distrust and then curiosity and then uh, 
something seemed like it won him over. Like he actually softened to the idea and he was going back to present it. Yeah, maybe. Well, I would, this whole scene, I went through so many emotions. And this last one with the explosion, at first I was like, oh, shit. But then I started thinking, the master illusionist is in there. And maybe the look on his face was still distrust, but he walked it in anyways. And maybe that explosion wasn't real. It was an illusion. And maybe it didn't go off. So the Lorian's playing along yet again putting on a show so that they could stage a sneak attack or something? Well, maybe if they sensed the magic in the box Mm -hmm. and didn't open it up. I'm assuming when you open it, it explodes. That's when it goes. Uh, You know, I'm not 100% confident about that, but it's something to think about. That's a good thought. I just couldn't believe, because it did seem like maybe she had gotten to him. It was all the more sad. Maybe that was all they had to do to win them over, and instead she just essentially wiped out an already endangered race of species. That's a whole species right there. Yeah, It's horrible. But again, I I started off saying I went through so many emotions in this scene. At first, when they grab Ilario, I'm like, oh shit, finally we're going to see her kick ass, Mm. you know? Because they're being mean to them because they're women. So you want a little bit of revenge. Right. And then just reading my notes, my next line is, wait, I hope she's not really meaning this shit. (laughs) (laughs) And then I wrote, she brought the dyad a small token of peace. What is it? Music box? Does she really care about Fillory? Hmm. So then I was hopeful again. Yeah. And then, oh, it's a fucking bomb. That's what I wrote in all caps. <laughs> well, not to go forward, but when Margot disagrees with you and thinks your punishment is too harsh, you know you've done something wrong. For sure. <laughs> well, that's something you've got to discuss with the whole crew. Like you don't just declare war on your own. I mean, war was already declared, but basically cementing war. Wipe out a race. Yeah. It's well, bad. She, that's the point. She doesn't care. Exactly. They need to emphasize the point that she has no more morality, no more sense of right and wrong. It's so simple to her when she goes back to tell Margo, I just solved the problem for you. Yeah. What's the issue? You can blame it on me. Like, that would make any difference. Yep. And I love, we're not there yet, but I love Margot's reaction to that. Yeah. In the next scene, Alice is alone, in control of the body, and on a mission. She finds a girl who she says is a thousand years old, and no girl, but an angler beast. One that knew a special man a long time ago, a master magician called Friar Joseph. Alice wants to know everything about him. The girl responds, what, in the parlance of your time? Fuck you, pay me. Oh, that's perfect. When Alice refuses, saying that she knows the beast's weaknesses, the angler beast chastises her stupidity. But then Quentin wakes up lying on the ground to find Alice standing in front of the dead beast who she had killed. Alice says it was a good act because it was a monster and she got what she needed using enhanced interrogation techniques. Doing the same thing, highlighting the essential evil that is now Nif and Alice... Yeah, their storylines are parallel at that moment. And as much as I'm super concerned for Julia, over the course of this episode, I'm almost fully convinced that Alice is all evil now. (sighs) I was so sure that it seemed there was a lot of the real Alice left, and Mm -hmm. now it appears as though that was just manipulation to get what she wanted out of Quentin. And there's nothing of her left. Yeah. Well, that monster seemed pretty cool, though, huh? 
Oh, that was crazy. Yeah. And you didn't get a great look at it when it transformed, but I think that was smart on their part. Yes. Because I, there were no flaws to be seen. And it, was and it let your mind take over what it would look like. Yeah, it was dark out. What's funny is I thought, because right when they have the scene with her and the knife and the beast and you, the worried look on her face, and then the next clip is Quentin on the floor waking up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no. Did she panic and just say, all right, Quentin, you take care of this. <laughs> you know, like just, we're about to fight. Q, you take over. Your job. Angler Beast. It's a cool name as well. Now, is that thing actually dead? Because she did say the rest of him is going to come up and he seems pretty pissed. I know. That confused me. I'm wondering if it's like one of those bugs where you cut off part of it and it grows oh, back. Oh, maybe. maybe. If it's a thousand years old, <clears> I'm sure it has really advanced survival mechanisms. You know, and her reaction to it was just like Julia's. Like, what? You should be thanking me. I did a good deed. You mm-hmm. should have seen all the child bones. It was a bad creature. What's your problem? Yep. Julia's was, what, I took care of them. You know, now we don't have to worry about them anymore. Martin Chatwin's exact reactions Mm -hmm. when we saw him, that essential otherness, that idea of right and wrong, of guilt, of empathy. It's almost like watching a sociopath. Oh, yeah, for sure. There are no feelings for others. They just can't cop on. They don't even get why this seems wrong to you. And there's just nothing more terrifying. No. Because... They describe the shade as something that allows you to feel emotion and empathy, but it seems so much more than that. It seems like what makes you human. Back at the castle, of course, Margot gets pissed and yells at Julia for her actions. <laughs> Those trees were endangered, and now everyone is enraged and calling for action. I mean, this is a civil war. This is fillery. Everything is magic. Everything is one, basically. So all other animals and all other plants and trees that are aware, are not going to fight this war for the Philorians. We already said they had to be on the same page and in harmony. They needed everyone's numbers in order to do battle with Loria. It's not just as simple as what Julia says, no. to blame it on her and everything's okay. And she doesn't care about the mess that she's going to leave Margot with. And while Margot says she kind of admires Julia in a sick way, they have a way of handling loose cannons, and she has the guards take her to the dungeon. Perfect response. Oh, and poor Margot thinks that's going to fix everything. If my hypothesis is even close to correct, I think Julia is going to be out of there soon. How does she get home, though? Maybe the Foo Fighters know a way. Quinn should have explained better to Margot when oh, he just going dropped on? this problem on her doorstep. I don't even know if he knew the full extent, but he knows Julia better than anyone. Mm-hmm. He knew something was seriously wrong with her. And Margot knows it now, too, but God only knows... What could have happened? This is not com- good communication here. Yeah, but you can't blame Quentin because he has so many issues that he's trying to deal with and he's trying to fix all of them at once. Oh, I know. But what sucks is that because Q is always going through that, mm-hmm. Julia always gets put on his back burner. And I can understand this is what makes people, I think, partially so upset. When people react to the Julia storyline. Yeah. And they're saying nobody pays her enough attention or the reason for that is because we as viewers respond to a story based on who we see as the main character, Mm -hmm. the primary protagonist and what they feel about the other characters. So from day one, we were introduced 
to Quentin as our main character, and we viewed the world through his eyes, including how he saw Julia. We got angry with her right Mm -hmm. along with him. What was her problem? She always thought she was better than him. She wouldn't let him have his thing. And when he sidelined her story, I think in a sense, so did we in our minds. And he always has something bigger to deal with, so he doesn't have the time. But this is supposed to be his best friend from childhood. The one who they always talked about finding the magical world of Fillory together and made maps of it underneath the kitchen table. He can barely be bothered with a five-minute conversation with her, knowing that she just lost her shade. Everything that she's gone through with Reynard and her suffering, and he just dumps her to be babysat. (laughs) So in large part, a lot of this, the whole story of Julia, is kind of Quentin's fault. Uh, I don't know about that. I I know. It's Jane Chatwin's fault for the whole loop that she put her through. It's Marina's fault. It's the Beast's fault. Quentin was second fiddle up until they realized magic was real. And I, I buy that wholesale, and I was Quentin's first supporter on all that. I couldn't agree with him more, especially knowing Book Julia, who was a little worse mm-hmm. towards him prior to all of that. But now enough time has gone by, enough things have happened that there's no excuse that he hasn't actually sat down with her and had a conversation. She's been back in the magical world for quite a bit now. They haven't had time to sit down and actually chat. She's been on her own mission. He's been on his. Nobody's had time for anybody, but he's finding time to deal with Alice because it's a priority. I'm just saying he's got to realize that the Julia problem is serious too, and he did make a promise to help her, and he hasn't really lived up to that. And maybe that's what she needs. Maybe she needs her friend. Maybe. But we do get to see the pain that he's in in this next scene. Yes, at the library where he tries to figure out a way to reverse the word is bond spell. He's finally come to realize what a mistake he made with all of this. And when Alice retorts that there is no way, Quentin breaks down, saying the whole thing isn't working. He can't help her this way. He wants the real Alice back. I can't help Fillory, and I can't help Elliot, and I can't help Julia, and I just want to do, God, one thing for the person that deserves it the most. That's what I want. And he knows now, finally, that he needs to ask someone for help. But she warns him that if he tells anybody, they're going to think he's crazy. Yeah, but he doesn't even just say that. He's realizing that he can't help any of this. He feels useless. Yeah. He is not the hero of this story. That's what he's feeling yeah. in the moment. And it, it's horrible. He makes himself completely vulnerable. And she responds by saying, the truth is you are a failure. So stop using me to try to fix that. And then she dips. That's when we get one of those weird-ass commercial cuts. We got two really drastic ones <laughs> this episode. And I know why, because these are a little longer. They're like five minutes longer than normal. And they need, of course, to put the commercials in to pay for all this. So the best way the director can do it is just like cut it right as right at the end of the sentence. The, and one of which was like in the middle of a sentence. I was just going to say the last word of the scene actually becomes the first word of the commercial. Yeah. So you sort of lose that dramatic impact you do, you're looking very for. Very much so. 
But yeah, he is truly suffering, and she just keeps putting more nails in the coffin. Meanwhile, at the cottage, Penny finds Katie getting drunk and toasting to dead ends. She confides to Penny that she drinks so she won't return to her junkie habits. She needs to hold it together long enough to find Reynard. Then she lashes out at him, reiterating that she's not his girlfriend. She's not his problem, and this isn't his chance to prove he's a hero. So he should fuck off. Yeah, really harsh. Very harsh. Holy shit, I know she's going through it, but he's just trying to help. Man, humans, when you feel vulnerable or when you feel like you might get get hurt, you lash out like an animal that's cornered. Yeah, what I love about Penny is that he knows that's what's going on, and you could see him trying not to take it personally. Yeah. But it still hurts. Okay, we have just three scenes left, but they were all really big ones. The first, Quentin is dealing with his own issues. As he wakes in a cab, and Alice tells him she portaled them to Ireland and back home. They already did it. Although she protests, Quentin tells the cabbie to take them back where they came from so he can see what happened. Only once there does Alice reveal she tricked him with reverse psychology. She actually wanted him to go there. So now he's all backwards. (laughs) They're inside this strange converted church and a man slash spirit appears. He doesn't know what it is. He asks who summoned him by calling him with something personal at the place of his transformation. And he can see Alice. That's our first tip off that something is different about him. He questions, what on earth are you doing inside this boy? And she admits she needs his help. I think it's then that Quentin realizes that the man is a Niffin, based on the words he's saying and the fact that he can see her. So he tries to box him to do that spell to contain him, which of course doesn't work. The master calls him a crushable little field mouse. And Alice explains for us. He really did look like one. Yeah. He was on the floor. God, you just, every time you think it can't get worse for Q. Yeah. Feel bad for the dude. Yeah. Alice tells us that history talks about priests who studied magic until they went too far and wound up as Niffins. Sometimes the boxing meant to contain them didn't go right. And the occasional Niffin slipped through. But she's figured out it was actually the same one over and over again, was this guy because Friar Joseph figured out how to escape. And she says she needs to know how to do it. But he chides that he's been like this for six centuries. She couldn't even imagine his power. She can't even get herself out of Quentin's back, so how could she possibly help him? But he decides to make a deal with her. I don't really know what made him change his mind, but he says if she can figure out how to free herself, that will somehow prove her worth to him. And then he'll share his secrets with her. Yeah. Maybe he's lonely. (laughs) Yeah, I don't... That whole thing was a little bizarre. The setting of it, uh, how it went down. But what really struck me as being the most important part, they go back to, you know, after he floats away, whatever (laughs) he does, a moment alone between her and Q, and Q starts bleeding from his nose. And she warns that this is because he's been trying to hold a Niffin inside of him. And he can't do that much longer or it's going to kill both of them. Well, I think this is when she realizes that she can get out. There is a way. And she has the power to destroy him, essentially. But I don't think she really wants to. You see the anger in her. But you also sometimes see glimpses of her caring for him. Just a little bit. But is that manipulation? Like now, is she forcing him to have a nosebleed so he'll think both of them are going to die if he doesn't let her out. 
I think the nosebleed was not on purpose. It's when she got angry and her power came out. So she did do the nosebleed, but it was by mistake. Mm. And then she started using that to manipulate him. But he's so easy I think to deep manipulate. down she still loves him. There's still a part of her. Oof. I want to believe. I don't. I don't I'm gonna <clears throat> have to respectfully disagree on that one. <laughs> but I love this storyline. Oh yeah, it's incredibly compelling. If she is telling the truth, it's very scary because now there is a literal ticking time bomb yeah, inside of him. Back at Whitespire, the healer works with the crystals, trying to draw the consciousness from the golem back into Elliot. But it seems like it's not working. They have another brownout. Then Fen shares her fears with Margot, who says she will protect her and will deliver everything Elliot promised. It's then that Elliot wakes up. Again, what a powerful moment. Very powerful. And Fen, who previously hasn't really meant all that much to Margot, they don't have a relationship. But it was a very inspiring speech. She knows what it's like to love Elliot. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. And to feel like she's losing him. And she's telling her, don't worry, because even if he's not here, I'm going to be there for you. We, we haven't seen Margot get that emotional with anybody but Elliot. That's true. And knowing how she feels, the, the fear she has, again, and then hearing that speech mm. meant, meant even more to us. The magician that was healing him sensed that he was back because she even started to say, but, and then Margot was like, get out. Mm. The first words we hear from an Elliot-less episode, listen to High Bambi. <laughs> <laughs> so and I was just as happy as Margot was to oh, see him yeah. back. I wonder if this will change him at all. Not for nothing. They didn't, I know it was a whole episode without him, but they didn't leave us in too much of a suspense. I mean, did you really question at any point if Elliot was gone for good? No, but it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, it was still fun for me. Okay. And our last scene, Penny returns to tell Katie that he solved the problem. From the book of Dana Wallens, he found the baby's name. He stole it from the library, but it's okay because he signed the contract with the order. He tries to rationalize it by saying he's going to get his hands back. He can help her. She thinks this is crazy, doesn't understand why he did it. They argue and Penny then yells that he loves her, at which she softens a little. And then Q shows up, and the two of them demand that he tell them what's been going on. Katie punches him. She's really on a roll. I mean, this is like her thing. Well, it's third punch. She punches everyone. Third episode with her. Third episode in a row with her punching someone. Yeah. And then Penny picks up there and incepts his mind where Alice tries to attack him. It's only then that they both realize she's inside Get of out. Quentin's mind. That was cool. Huh. Well, I have new hope because... He's no longer alone, and we were worried about that. Like, why is he keeping this a secret? Mm -hmm. He needs the crew's help. But he wasn't even going to tell them. No, he wasn't. They ambushed him <laughs> and forced the truth out of him. But now Penny has another thing to worry about. Well, Penny, yet again, caring about everybody else, trying yeah. to figure out what's going on with Quentin, immediately realizing there was a problem and didn't let up all episode. He stole the book so that he could A, save Julia, who he doesn't even like, B, get his hands back, mm -hmm. C, help Mayakovsky figure out what's going on with magic, but most importantly, he was going to find an alternative to all of those things right. until he saw the suffering Katie was going through. So by doing this, he could also help her, and to him, he didn't care what he had to agree to. 
Well, I'm wondering, what does this mean? Does this mean less him? Like, does he have to report back to the library soon? Does he have to stay there for... I mean, that librarian is always there. She doesn't leave. No. So does servitude mean he literally has to be in the library all the time? I don't know. I think at this point, while he's alive, when they need him, he has to do something. He has to work for them when they need him. And then once he's dead, that's when he will be a librarian. Oh, maybe that's what she is. Yeah. This is her soul now. And he's not yet a master magician. But I don't think... That's but, a good idea. Yeah. And this may be good in a couple of reasons because we know that they often have to go back to books to, to learn new magic. Mm. Now they have access to the world's li- magic libraries, all of them. But I don't think this is going to be a big deal for a few reasons. One, in order for that contract to be fulfilled, he has to get magic from them. They have to heal him. So signing that contract is if they heal his hands and he can do magic again. We're assuming they didn't already do that in the last scene when he goes to tell Katie. Not yet, no. But also, what about Mayakovsky? We didn't see him talk to Mayakovsky yet. And I have a feeling... He's got to bring him the book that they gave him. There's more to this Mayakovsky, and I think something's going to turn up where either Penny or Mayakovsky will find a reason, a way, or a stipulation where he no longer has to be compliant with that contract. Well, I hope so. They can't just leave it on a cliffhanger between him and Mayakovsky. They have to go back. Mm-hmm. As you said, he's got the book now, so hopefully we'll see it next episode with him returning that to Breakbill South. And if anybody could find a loophole, you would think it's Mayakovsky. Then again, he landed himself in a situation where he's stuck now <laughs> at the South Pole for the rest of his life for what he bargained for. Um But I guess that should give him empathy, hopefully. And I like your take on the reading of the contract. That gives me a little bit more hope for potentially just doing acts of service during his life. But also, if Mayakovsky heals his hands first, then the contract's null and void, isn't it? I think so. They said they would help him heal his hands and they would get him the book. So they got him the book. Well, the book... But that's got to be the smaller part He had it, the right? library card, so the book wasn't part of the deal. Okay. So it was about healing his hands. Okay. So I don't think that we've seen the end of that, and I, I still believe that there's a way around it. Hmm. He can't be... It just they doesn't just, make sense with the storyline. I know, but they just seem smart. Like, that lady seems like she's got her bases covered. Of course, yeah. And regardless if they haven't done their part yet, he signed it. So they could do that at any time. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's just that he kind of works for them at this point. Mm -hmm. That would be good. There might be some cool journeys that he goes on with that. Well, I'd like to learn more about that librarian. Yeah. And and the books that they got. That could tell you a hell of a lot about a lot of people. Well, speaking of tell you a hell of a lot, we find out that the baby's name is John Spencer Gaines. And earlier, Julia found out that the baby was born August 20th, 1976. Now, we don't know much about this baby, so I did some detective work. Okay. And I say that with quotes around it, but this is pretty fun. You ready? So the baby is a Leo because he was born August 20th. And a Leo is described as ambition and honesty seem to dominate their personalities. Ambition and honesty. I don't know if it's just the part of me that wants him to be like this good guy that's going to be part of the crew, which probably won't happen. But if it has anything to do with... Your sign. I mean, they did say his 
month he was born. So maybe it does mean something. I think it's kind of fun to think. In that I would manner. love to go on a theory rant about that. Mm-hmm. I'm just not convinced that it's a magician that we've had exposure to. I really think that. No, it's not. Because they would have known John Spencer Gaines by name. Right. And if this person didn't know what he was his entire life, he's probably a human just living out in the regular world. Yeah. But that would have been such a fun twist for us to try to figure out, you know, where do we know this guy? Yeah, but I was trying to figure out at least what kind of guy he would be. And, I mean, in the world of the magicians, I kind of have a feeling that astrology means a lot. Oh, I'm sure it does. And Dana already told us that he is a well-to-do man. He has some kind of high status at whatever he does in life. But here's the next thing. Them going to see him puts him in danger right away because the fox is waiting and watching. Yeah. So if they go see him... I think she's got that covered now. With the invisibility? With the spell. So only Julia can go then. Would you trust her? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Absolutely not. Who would you trust in the crew to go talk to him? Maybe Katie? Penny. Yeah, Penny. It always falls to Penny. We also got a question posed from Melanie, our clatcher. She prefaced this by saying she hasn't read the books, so she doesn't know what's going to happen. But could this whole thing be some sort of big test for the group that Dean Fogg and associates know about somehow? Well, that would explain the reason that they don't help much. (laughs) I think that if it was completely restricted to Fillory, I might almost buy that. But there's so many bigger players, like the Beast, Reynard. I don't think they would have counted on that and the impact that it could have on everything, including magic throughout the whole world. You know, I don't think they would take that kind of gamble. But it's fun to think about. It is, and I do think that Dean Fogg could know more than he's letting on, the way that he did with Jane, Mm. where he was aware of the fact that she was trying to turn back time, and he just knew that he couldn't interfere. So you could have something similar going on. Maybe this Mm. is still part of the loop. That'd be cool. Mm. All right, Jason, I have one more thing before we get to our ratings. We went on a filler request, number eight, We mentioned that earlier, we would talk about the mechanics of shades. Maybe this will give us a little more insight into what's going on with Julia. So the website tells us, the shade is the tiny beating heart of the soul, the part that allows people to process complex emotions and connect to one another. The bonds of friendship, love, intimacy, trust, and compassion all rely completely upon the shade. Everyone has a shade, and with it comes a capacity for empathy and connection. Your shade lets you feel things fully, but on the flip side, that makes you vulnerable to pain that could irrevocably damage you. A shade that has suffered intense trauma can become such an agonizing raw nerve that one would do anything to make the pain stop, even remove the shade itself. A person only loses their shade through either willful or violent means. One has to consciously remove it, a la Martin Chatwin, risky, or having it unwillingly severed like Julia's. Tragic. Severing one shade can seem like a huge relief at first, but it's a double-edged sword. For Martin, removing his shade freed him from the emotional fallout of Plover's horrific abuse. Of course, it also turned him into the beast. Without a shade, Martin was free of pain, but also free of a conscience or any sort of moral compunctions about his actions. 
Meanwhile, while Julia seems to be doing okay and genuinely feeling better, so did Martin. And she did just blow up an entire species of sentient <laughs> trees. So I thought that was really insightful yeah. because it tells us exactly what the purpose of a shade is and what Julia has lost here. I still don't think it's lost forever. The thing is, they did make a point of telling us mm-hmm. they nicked her soul. But the soul is the bigger part. The shade is just a smaller part. However, it's kind of the most essential component. Did they get her whole shade? It seems like they might have. So where does that leave you? You know, if you still have part of your soul but no shade, it's very very gray. You know what? I'm with the Foo Fighters. Humans are too volatile, and we need to get rid of all of them in Fillory. Fuck them. Banish the children of Earth? (laughs) Yes. I don't know about that. (laughs) All right, well, let's move on to our rating. On a scale of 1 to 10, how many crowns do you give episode 8? 9.1. There was a lot going on, but I think they put it together correctly. There was a perfect mixture of humor and distress. And again, I love that through line of, of what they're willing to do for their loved ones. And we're left off with a lot of the storylines being pushed forward in a great deal. And I'm more and more excited about each and every one. I'm back on the Reynard Fox train. I'm really curious about who this kid is. Well, this man is. The fox's child. And I want him to be a good guy. I hope he really is. <laughs> and I, I want to see what happens with Penny and Mayakovsky. We're going to see him again. There's so much to look forward to. I agree. And so much so. I give it a 9.5. Oh, wow. And that's my highest rating to date. I didn't see that coming. I know. I gave episodes four and five a 9.4, The Flying Forest and Cheat Day. And I really struggled with this because there were parts of this episode that completely annoyed me. And the bouncing around had me very frustrated. But the parts of it that I liked, I liked so much Mm -hmm. that it had to bring my overall rating up. And the biggest factors were the return to the major book elements that I was most looking forward to. The getting to the meat of the Julia storyline. Right. Penny and Katie reuniting and yet everything that Penny is going through. Ramping up the stakes between Alice and Quentin and everything that you have in Fillory. I mean, I kept saying I want the crew to start to move back into the magical world of Fillory. So on top of all the other plot stuff, we also got magic. We got a dryad, talking trees, spells galore, and impending war. It was a little too much packed into one episode, but I really liked it. You know, I really think the bouncing around, if you weren't taking notes, wouldn't bother you that much. That could be true, and I did try to take that into consideration with my rating. It actually had a good beat to it. Well, who is your MVM for this episode? Well, I wanted to do Penny, but I know I only have one Penny left, so I'm going to save him, and I'm going to go with Julia. Okay. So I believe that's my first Julia. Yes, it is. She was very badass. She did do some dumb things, I do admit, and I'm mad at her for that, but she seems, even though she lost the power source, she still seems more powerful to me now. Yeah, you made a good point about that earlier, that she is free from the restraints. Of human emotion. Of, and, and morality. <laughs> I think that does make her more powerful uh, to some extent. 
Well, I'm going to grant you your wish because my MBM for this episode is Penny. Nice. I finally get to give it to him. I've gone all season wanting to name him as an MBM and kind of running through all of our other major characters. (laughs) And when I thought about it, he has done so much, but this episode, more than any other, he made the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, he believes that contract is true and binding, even if he does wind up finding a way out of it later. So he willingly just gave up his life and a million years of his soul after that. He signed the worst contract ever, but he found a way to help Mayakovsky fix his hands, save Julia and Katie, and not caring a lick about himself. You can say that about every episode with Penny. He is the man. And Emily agrees with us. She says, Arjun Gupta was on fire tonight, my MVM. On to Clatcher's comments. Yeah, we have a few from last episode, episode seven. There was sort of an ongoing conversation between Melly and Melanie. So I thought this was really great. Melly said, the scene with the disco ball was so fun. Brought back the good old Elliot and his tricks. But all fun aside, I'm quite worried about his body and fillery. Please wake up. Also, why isn't Elliot upset with Margot for making decisions without consulting him? And why isn't Q telling anyone about Alice? (laughs) (laughs) Which last episode, we completely agreed with that. And Melanie responded, I feel like Elliot and Margot just have that kind of relationship. But Q not telling about Alice, what good is that doing? And I continued to feel that way right up until the end of this episode, that at some point he would have to turn to his friends. And I can't even say that he actually did that because, like we said, they pretty much had to ambush him to get it out of him. So Q is going to have to get out of his head and his ass to some extent at, at some point during this season and come together with the group, I think. He needs to realize that he's only as powerful as the sum of all his parts. And the crew is all his parts. And he keeps thinking the only way he can be involved is if he can be the hero of the story and then getting depressed when he finds out that he's not. Mm. He just needs to be there and be part of it. Don't do it on your own. All right, Jason. Melly also posed us a good question. She was talking about that magician's personality quiz that we took. Yeah. And there was one question in there that said, if you could master one spell, what type would you choose? Expert in battle magic, ability to speak to animals, mind reading, creating magic doors to visit your favorite places, short bursts of time travel, or transfiguration. She said this reminded us of the question that we posed to them, but Mm. do you remember what you answered for this while you were taking the test? I think transfiguration, because I felt like I could turn into a bird if I wanted to travel. Mm, That's cool. Mind reading, I think... I'm too sensitive to know what people really think about me, so I wouldn't <laughs> want that. Ability to speak to animals. I figure if I can transfigure into an animal, oh, you I don't could probably need to speak do that. to them. Yeah. True. Expert in battle magic would help right around now if you were them. Yeah. But day to day, I think I picked mind reading because I normally do pick that type of answer. I also thought in everyday life, though, creating magic doors, or if I just needed a minute to walk on a beach in Hawaii... Or be in the forest, in the woods. Like, that'd be a cool spell. Well, that was my second one because you know how much I hate driving. Mm. And when we have to go see either my parents or your parents, I dread the two-hour drive. I can't deal with it. So that would help tremendously. Yeah, that would be awesome. Well, that wraps everything we had to talk about for episode eight, Word is Bond, a great episode. 
So we're going to do our preview for episode nine. If you are afraid of spoilers, we will see you next time. And for everyone that's still here, we heard about episode nine, Lesser Evils, which says, get ready for a marriage, a kidnapping, a battle, a reunion, a goodbye, and an unthinkable betrayal. Oh boy, that's a lot to get ready for. Episode nine is going to be crazy. I can't wait. Thanks for listening, as always. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at CKC Podcast. Email us, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. And check out our Patreon page. We just dropped our March bonus episode, and it was a lot of fun. And if we could reach out to you once more, and please just ask you, if you're liking what you hear, go on and give us a rate and review on iTunes. Even just a few words would really help us out a lot. Thank you for everything that you guys do as fans. Until next week. This round's on me. This round is on me! Please hang up and try again.